Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and thank you for joining us at Faith and Family Radio. We're continuing our studies in practical wisdom for everyday life from the book of Sirach in the Old Testament. And again, as I really love to repeat and emphasize that the book of Sirach is the only book in the entire Bible that has the nickname Ecclesiasticus, or the church book. And this was the book used in the early centuries of the church widely to train people who have come out of paganism to live as faithful Christians. And wow, if there's an application and similarity to today, it's the same thing. We're surrounded by increasingly a pagan culture, and we need practical wisdom for everyday living. And today, we're going to look at the book of Sirach and learn about wisdom regarding money, because our attitude and our relationship with money affects our spiritual lives in profound ways, so it's important. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, we're going to just stir the pot a little bit here in our study with Sirach. It it's never hurts at times to have your common practices and attitudes challenged a bit by the scriptures. And I'm going to concentrate in a couple areas from the book of Sirach about money that you may not have heard before. Let's start with Sirach chapter 35, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed, for all these things are to be done because of the commandment. The offering of a righteous man anoints the altar, and its pleasing odor rises before the Most High. The sacrifice of a righteous man is acceptable, and the memory of it will not be forgotten. Glorify the Lord generously, and do not stint or hold back the first fruits of your hands. With every gift, show a cheerful face and dedicate your tithe with gladness. I'd like to zero in on verse 9. I think it's a verse we really need to hear. And this is talking about our tithes and offerings to be given to God. It's Yes, it's a commandment, but Sirach tells us it's to be done with a cheerful face, every gift, a cheerful face, and with gladness of heart and cheerful merriment, joy, that is to accompany our giving. And, you know, there's a cousin passage in the New Testament to Sirach chapter 35, and that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, where St. Paul is encouraging giving, but he has a very, very important qualification regarding the giving. He says this, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember Sirach 35? Show a cheerful face with gladness of heart. And 
this is both Old and New Testament. You can't say, well, that's that was back then and it's different now. No, it's the same in both Testaments. And it's interesting where St. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is the word we now get in English, hilarious. And not not just like a eh, little bit of a smile here, I'm supposed to do it. No, you know, an overflowing joy, merriment, uh, hilarious giving, and that is to be our attitude. Now, I told you I was going to stir the pot a little bit. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. This is my personal opinion, but one of the worst ideas ever is the common practice in parishes of the mandated envelope system. Anytime you start mandating something, it will kill the grace of giving, and the heart of the believer will respond because mandating something is one way to motivate action. But the other way is through a love of God returning to him for all he's given us. Yes, it's a commandment to give, but we do it cheerfully and abundantly. And just need to be very, very careful about mandating things where it should have space in the heart of the believer to really bring forth that joyful giving. The most potent motivator on earth is the grace of God. Now, I looked at an Old Testament passage. I I love this. Um, Notice it says in 2 Corinthians 9, not under compulsion, okay? This is the only compulsion I'm aware of in the Bible. It's Exodus 36, and they were constructing the tabernacle, and it says they kept bringing free will offerings every morning, and that the men who were doing the work came to Moses, and they said, you know, these people have brought more than enough for doing the work. And so Moses had to command the people. This is Exodus 36.6. Moses gave the command, and the word was proclaimed, neither man nor woman do anything more for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. You see, when it's a free will, hearts touched by the grace of God, it overflows. You don't have to hire fundraising consultants, or you don't have to contact the federal government for bailouts and running charity programs. The people give in abundance. And in many parishes, the mandated envelope system is tied to receiving the grace of a sacrament. Think about this. Uh, This could have widespread effects because our relationship to money will affect our spiritual life, and there's supposed to be a certain level of joy, of gladness, of merriment, and abundance of grace in the middle of this, or else our spiritual lives are going to be set off of kilter. Uh, My P.S., one of the most important books of the New Testament is never read. In fact, I had a New Testament professor said that uh, the book I'm about to mention is one of the two of the most important books in the New Testament, according to his thought. 
and he was talking about the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter, and it's only about a runaway slave uh, going back to its master and a letter written by Paul saying, you know, be nice to him. I'm thinking, is this? And yes, I think the renewal, a deep, profound, widespread renewal, if we could get away from emphasizing mandates and emphasizing this. Listen to what St. Paul, how he handled this whole master issue. He says, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is right, yet for love's sake, I will appeal to you, appeal to the heart. He says in verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. And then he concludes, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. This is exactly back to Exodus 36, where where finally the compulsion had to be given like, stop, this is too much, too much free will offerings. What a wonderful problem to have. But if grace is absent and you do that by having commands, mandates, forcing people to do things where you should leave room for the grace of God to motivate, it's far more powerful. Jesus talked about moving mountains, and the toughest mountain to move is the human heart attached to wealth. And grace can move that. And what it does, it affects the person's entire spiritual life. Okay? Now, let me stir the pot just a little bit more. I'm back to Sirach 35. And we concluded with verse 9. With every gift, show a cheerful face and dedicate your tithe with gladness. Now, I'm going to read the next two verses which I consider, at least in the United States, extremely dangerous, but they are the word of God, so I'm going to go ahead and read them. Verse 10 of Sirach 35, give to the Most High as he has given, as generously as your hand has found. For the Lord is the one who repays, and he will repay you sevenfold. Now, why is this so dangerous? Well, you know, there's people on TV, televangelists, who, who are very good at quoting similar passages. They generally don't quote Sirach because they don't believe it's a, one of the genuine books of the Bible. But basically, they're saying, uh, give and it will be multiplied to you. Now, that's a truth. But they generally change that just a little bit and say, give to me, and God will multiply you. And of course, it's a very selfish-oriented type of giving motivation. But for instance, in the book of Malachi, which everybody believes is a book of the Bible, Protestants and Catholics, Malachi 3.10, God encourages people, bring the full tithe in to the sanctuary and put me to the test. I'm not aware of anywhere else in the entire Bible, God says, put me to the test, try me. And he says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Um, 
Now, let me go back to Corinthians, where we just saw God loves a hilarious giver, just like Sirach 35, show a cheerful face and a glad heart when you give. It, Paul says, after he says God loves a cheerful giver, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and provide it in abundance for every good work. Now, I know there's a lot of theologians and such say, well, all this sevenfold stuff and God putting to the test and overflowing blessing from heaven, that's just Old Testament era. Well, how about Second Corinthians? I'm afraid that's the new covenant. And God says, you know, give with a hilarious heart and you will have blessings in abundance. And it's not simply uh, material blessings. They're, they're included, but uh, blessings so that you have enough to help those in need. You have enough uh, of graces in your life to lead a faithful life in the midst of a pagan society. God says you'll be enriched in every way, not just materially, but there will be a response. And as I say, this is a bit dangerous with the, I call them um, basically money-grabbing, embarrassing uh, televangelist uh, declaring this, but at root, false teaching to really be effective has to have some basis of fact, and this is the fact, that God loves a cheerful, hilarious, joyful giver, and when given in response to the overwhelming grace of God to us, God returns blessing to you in abundance, and God says, put me to the test that does not have an expiration date to it. Uh, He will return to you a blessing, okay? So the question is, are we obedient to the command of God by mandate, or are we obedient to the command of God because of the grace of God working in our hearts? And one, we'll move people at a snail's pace, but it will move them, and the other will move mountains. And that's the decision we can take or leave. All right, here's another topic. And in a way, it's kind of a sensitive one because I'm going to apply it in a very specific uh, situation. In Sirach chapter 8, starting in verse 13, it says, do not give surety beyond your means. And we don't use the word surety too much. Maybe lawyers do, I'm not sure. But surety is simply co-signing for a loan. When somebody doesn't have adequate assets and taking out a loan in case they can't pay, then somebody else with assets co-signs or gives surety that they will pay if the other person is either unwilling or unable. And Sirach 8.13 says, do not give surety beyond your means, but if you give surety, be concerned as one who must pay. Now, it's very interesting. There's a subtle difference between Proverbs and Sirach. These are our cousin books of the Bible, but surety or co-signing alone is discussed four times in the book of Proverbs. And basically in Proverbs, giving surety is an utterly foolish thing to do. And in Sirach, now there might have been different economic situations when these two different books were composed. 
Sirach 29.14 says, A good man will be surety for his neighbor, but a man who has lost his sense of shame will fail him. Do not forget all the kindness for your surety, for he has given his life to you. Now, these were the stakes in the Old Testament that if you took out a debt and you not could not pay the debt, you could be sold into slavery. That's what it means he has given his life for you. So if you're co-signing, the person can't pay. And if you've co-signed, given surety, and you can't pay, it could mean you're sold into slavery. This is really big stuff. And that USB handbook on Sirach, which I've mentioned a few times, mentions these two different approaches. So Sirach certainly warns against doing it lightly. And it says in Sirach 39.18, being surety has ruined many men who were prosperous. Assist your neighbor according to your ability, but take heed to yourself lest you fail. I find the difference between Proverbs and Sirach somewhat challenging. Uh, I'm just personally, because I'm very cautious, conservative with finances, I lean a bit towards the Proverbs side of it. And if somebody really needs the money, again, this is my perspective, it may be better simply to give it to them than to co-sign for something that might have an iffy ability to pay back. Because in today's world, at least, they're giving out loans to folks and to situations where the money should never be given. But where this really comes home to families and can be very sensitive is college debt. Uh, College debt is one of the most enormous sources of debt, and the federal government has saying this is a such a disaster that uh, at least the current administration wants to pay part or all of this off, uh, which I think is kind of unfair to people who have paid their college debts off. But you should be aware, as a parent, if you're asked to co-sign for your son or daughter's college loans, you are liable. And if your son or daughter declares bankruptcy, the college debts are not washed away. If you declare bankruptcy, the college debts are not washed away. And at least in the past, I don't know if it's changed, but say even if you're at re- near retirement age and then you start collecting Social Security, they can even tap a portion of your Social Security to pay back the college loans. And so you need to be cautious that college debt and uh, things happen, like a health crisis can wipe out your family finances, and then you're left with the inability to pay it back, and you declare bankruptcy, but the college debt doesn't go away. And you say, well, it's my son or daughter's dream and this and that. Well, you have to be really down to earth. You know, how, What finances has God provided for you? Uh, is it affordable, perhaps, or more affordable to attend a community college for two years and then do your last two years at a normal four-year institution or maybe going here versus there, a lot more affordable? It's just something to really consider because co-sign a loan for your son or daughter. They can't pay it back. You know what might happen? For whatever reason, they may not be able to come home on Thanksgiving. 
In other words, they'll be avoiding you to avoid the subject of the debt or even the guilt from the failure to pay the debt. And I haven't heard too much of this in Catholic circles, but you know, there is absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing wrong with learning a trade if that's your inclinations. And here we are, uh, this is the year of St. Joseph. We want to make big theology of it. But, you know, bottom line, he was a carpenter. He was a carpenter, and think of it, like the um, uh, coronavirus uh, had a lockdown for so many businesses. And, you know, the lockdown came quick over a series of weeks and a couple of months. St. Joseph had his lockdown overnight. In the middle of the night, he had a warning that the Christ child's life was in danger from Herod. He had to take his wife, his newborn son, and go to a foreign country, pack whatever few tools he could, perhaps on a donkey or whatever, and go work in a foreign land. He could do that because he had a manual trade. And sometimes we think, well, the Catholic intellectual life is the only road to travel. Well, for many, it's a great road. But for other young people, learning a skilled trade and following the footsteps of St. Joseph may not be a bad thing to do. Sirach chapter 40 and verse 18 says, Life is sweet for the self-reliant and the worker. And uh, I kind of like Mike Rowe. He's the guy who does the Dirty Jobs TV show, and not just a TV show, but he has uh, set up a foundation, the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, and he says one of his hardest challenges is giving away free money, scholarship money, to provide for young people who are willing to work hard at more manual-type trade jobs, and they'll end up earning six-figure salaries. And sometimes you go to college for a major that you'll never have a salary adequate to pay off the debt. Now, you say, well, not everything you learn in college um, is going to earn a lot of money. And I realize that. But you don't want to run up the debt for it and without the ability to pay it off because then you're a, a lifelong debtor. Young families um, put off having children because they're still paying off college loans years later. Mike Rowe says, America is lending money it doesn't have to kids who can't pay it back to train them for jobs that no longer exist. He says, that's nuts, and I tend to agree. And Sirach 10.27 says, better is a man who works and has abundance of everything than one who goes about boasting but lacks bread. You know, I have a fancy suit. I have a fancy car, all on debt. Uh, I have a fancy job that <laughs> really doesn't bring in much money, but it's, it's, it's shiny and it looks good. It's prestigious. And I can compare myself to the Smiths and the Joneses. Well, better is a man who works and has an abundance of everything. And that Mike Rowe works uh, organization, microworks.org, has scholarship money for those who will show up early, work hard, volunteer for the tough jobs at a, at a site, and have the prosperity and the reliance, the self-reliant worker, even through the ups and downs of 
our economy, and it seems to have ups and downs. Now, here's one, Sirach 18, the stern warning about feasting with borrowed money. Feasting with borrowed money, the United States is better than any country in the entire history of mankind of doing this. Both our government, our corporations, and our families, individuals, our students, everybody, we are best at any other civilization in the history of mankind of feasting with borrowed money. Sirach 18.32 says, Do not revel in luxury, lest you become impoverished by its expense. Do not become a beggar by feasting with borrowed money when you have nothing in your purse. Well, feasting with borrowed money, debt, can be a lot of fun because you can buy things and do things you can't afford. Yet when you enter an economic downturn, debt is a financial albatross that can just ruin you. And, you know, right now, right here in Greenville, and I'm sure probably where you're listening to my voice right now, we're going through a housing boom. And so families are saying, well, you know what? The more money we borrow, and money's cheap to borrow, the more money we will make. You know, we flip our house and sell our house. And I've heard a real estate expert who is selling hyper expensive audio recordings and how to get rich with real estate, no money down by going into debt and all this. And he declared to me, the value of real estate never goes down. Ooh, was that a mistake? And you can get caught when you revel in luxury and feast with borrowed money. Sirach warns against it. You know, I was visiting my mother during the 2008 uh, recession. I was down in Florida and BlackRock, which I think is one of the largest investment groups in the world, certainly in the United States. And in Tampa, they were going and buying hundreds of homes of people who used to own them, families who used to live in them, and then went in foreclosure. And they were then becoming the landlords and people who owned their homes became renters. Well, now BlackRock is preparing to buy up entire neighborhoods in the next downturn. Protect your financial family health. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 349 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to learn more about Catholic family life.